0: Welcome to the Senya Happy Hour, where you get one hour of learning in less than 30 minutes.
1: Today I speak with Drs. Melissa McCart and Sandra Marshall, who are experts in the field of traumatic brain injury, or TBI, and the implications of a TBI on learning. Dr. Sandra Marshall is a licensed psychologist with St. Charles Health System in Bend, Oregon, And Dr. Melissa McCart is a national and international speaker and author on the topic of brain injury and return to school following injury. Both are involved with CBIRT, or CBIRT, the Center on Brain Injury Research and Training. Today we discuss TBI in young children and the possible implications on future learning. We also talked about how students with TBI are different than students with learning disabilities and how they needed to be treated as such in the classroom. Dr. McCart and Dr. Marshall shared their insights on the importance of collaboration between home and school and how educators can learn more about traumatic brain injury through the impressive amount of resources available through returntoschool.org. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. I know I learned incredible amounts of good information. And now, on to the show. Hello, Doctors Marshall and McCart, and welcome to the podcast.
0: Nice to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having us.
1: You bet. Well, for a bit of background, I was speaking with Tracy Ellis, who's one of our friends at Senya International, and she's from International Diagnostic Solutions, IDS, and she's a longtime friend and sponsor of Senya. Um, we were discussing traumatic brain injury or TBI, and the effect it may have on learning. She was telling me that the area of the injury affects different areas of learning, and that that just. Um, ended up in this long discussion. And she finally said, you know, you need to talk to Dr. Marshall. Um, And Dr. Marshall, you in turn said, you know, (laughs) you need to talk with Dr. McCart. So um, thank you both for joining us. Um, First of all, can you just tell us a bit about your backgrounds? And then I'd love to jump into TBI and learning.
2: Go ahead, Sandra. All right. Well, my name is Sandra Marshall and I am a licensed psychologist, but my journey has been anything but just landing in psychology. I actually started off as a French teacher in Vermont and then became a guidance counselor and a school psychologist. So I have deep roots in the world of education. Um, But through my doctorate program, my focus was on pediatric traumatic brain injury and developed a specialty in neuropsychology. So um, that is just a passion of mine of working with students with traumatic brain injury, but basically it's then generalized into neurodevelopmental conditions. And I live now in Bend, Oregon, where I'm the clinic director of a program called PEDL, which is the Programs of Evaluation Development and Learning. And we provide comprehensive evaluations for students across, Neurological and neurodevelopmental conditions, but one of my passions has been working with the University of Oregon and the centers for brain injury training and research, research and training. um, And developing a a concussion protocol for students in our community, but it's really grown to uh, being looked at as a national model and I'll let uh, Dr McCarter talk about that.
0: Okay. You make me write things down. Um, So, I'm Dr. Melissa McCart. um, And I have worked in education in some way since I was 17 years old. Uh, It was my first real job. I was a one on one assistant for a student with autism when I was 17. And it just kind of fed my desire to be a special ed teacher. So, I was a special ed teacher for a long time and then I was a behavior consultant. So I would travel around and help people with kids who were having a hard time. Um, After that, I was a school administrator and I was at a very kind of high SES school. And I really, after eight years of doing that, missed the kids that were in special ed and those families. And so I started looking around and landed on the Center for Brain Injury Research and Training and became the director of the Oregon TBI teams through through them. Um, I also do TBI research for schools. Uh, I do a lot of work in education and training for teachers, for school psychologists, OTs, PTs, that kind of thing. Um, currently, I am very involved in policy and legislation. Um, over the course of of this work, I have come to realize that we can change things for the better for more people that way. And so I put a lot of energy into that as well. Um, What Sandra was talking about is we actually are studying the Central Oregon uh, return to school model through a um, large grant from the CDC Center for Disease Control to look at that as a replicable model that we can put out to other, other states, other areas about to how to do it the right way and so central oregon and Sandra and the team she works with are are currently uh, considered a national leader in in this work and so uh, we have a long history together Sandra and I
2: mm-hmm.
0: that's great
1: and then just another little piece I happen to be from central oregon as well and Sandra and I just found out we're from the same hometown or same town So. Yeah. Um, I think it's great that both of you have such a history in education. Uh, I know our listeners always appreciate someone who's been there and and been in the trenches, so to speak, and um, can help us understand more of how we can help our students and support our students. So um, let me ask you about traumatic brain injury. Why does it matter, first of all, where the brain is injured in terms of future learning,
2: Sandra? That is a good question. As a <laughs> neuropsychologist, the evaluations that we do on students are really guided by brain behavior functioning. And while I'd like to say that we can, for example, take a particular area, for example, let's say someone tells me that the child was hit on the left side of their brain, localizing necessarily where the Injury is, and then relating that to the functional outcomes doesn't always blend really nicely. So as much as we want to take, okay, left side of the brain, maybe there's language involved, maybe there's this involved. We know that when the brain gets injured, there is this kind of process that goes on in the brain that it might be the, the functional outcomes might be much more diffuse than just the localized place. So that's why evaluation, the piece that I bring to the table is understanding the brain, the whole brain, the whole child, the social, emotional, behavioral, cognitive, memory, executive functioning, understanding the whole child. And in the context of their family and in the context of their community, how the child is functioning and then what needs to happen in all of those systems to support that child's progression back to school. So that's, that's maybe a way of avoiding specifically your, your sure. question, Lori, but I think it's really important to say that we can't just look at the, where the injury is and say, yes, we're going to expect these kinds of problems.
1: No, no, that makes sense. And thank you um, for clarifying that. And um, so to take it a little bit further, um, just as a special educator myself and have um, through time, I mean, through 25 years reading report after report. um You know, when you read the parent history, quite often there's one little sentence in there um, that will just stand out. Like, um, Janie um, fell out of the car when she was six months old. Um, But it was, you know, nothing needed to happen afterwards. Or um, so-and-so fell out of a tree when he was four. Or so another child was sitting in their car seat on the table and the car seat fell off the table. So um, these things are always mentioned, but then there doesn't seem to be any correlation thing when it comes to their future learning. I mean, they're just mentioned. So my, I, I've always been curious by this because I read them and then I always have that question of, well, could that have, could have. Could it have been something? So I guess I guess that's a long way of asking is, can seemingly small accidents as children have lasting impacts on their learning?
2: Melissa, this is right up your alley.
0: It is. This is something we actually are dealing with a lot in Oregon right now and putting a lot of emphasis on in terms of, of training. So we know uh, of the years of childhood, so say birth to 20, or eighteen, um, the most frequently injured uh, age group is that are those little kids. They're even higher than our teenagers, which always everybody says is the highest group, um, but they're not. They're second to our our very young, um, who experience a lot of falls, uh, like you were talking about. And so what we're seeing is we're seeing kids who maybe had an injury when they were six months, like one I'm dealing with right now, um, or three. And they don't seem to have any issues, but then all of a sudden they go to school and Mm -hmm. we start to see things that look like, I don't know, maybe ADHD or learning difficulty, um, to be more explicit than executive function, um, issues. Sometimes it looks like forms of autism. Um, and if we are careful, we can trace that back to injuries and be looking at things like developmental trajectories prior to the injury? Um, Were they on a path that was normal at that point? And then after the injury, maybe things slowed down or changed. Um, So long answer to say yes, that can happen. And we are trying to come up with ways to help students um, get access to services and families get access to services uh, in those specific situations.
2: Son, did you have anything to add to that? You know, I think I just really appreciate, Lori, you raising this question about the importance of history and really probing more around history. As, a, as a, an evaluator, we can't necessarily always make correlational, like, oh, yeah, that's the reason why this child might be mm-hmm. having problems, but it certainly is a risk. And the work that Melissa is doing in terms of really advocating for, do you want to talk about the credible history component?
0: Sure. Um, so as a special educator, Lori, I'm sure you know that in the United States, most, um, most states require for a student to be eligible for TBI under IDEA and special ed, a medical statement. Um, in Oregon, we've recently revised our Oregon administrative rules to include an alternative to that called a credible history interview. So say you have a child who was injured young and we never had a medical evaluation, we could do an interview with the parent who is a credible person and um, do a developmental history and gather information that way to make a child eligible for special education under TBI. So we've really been trying to create alternatives for difficult situations in accessing uh, services. Hmm. Well,
1: you give me pause, but because of course now, you know, everyone knows who listens to this podcast that I have a child with special needs. And, and so I imagine that there's a lot of parents that are listening to this right now, quickly going back in their history to see, hmm, could it have been that fall? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, A little bit of stress there, but um, what I guess a good follow-up question would be, so they have that credible history. What would a good next step for, for parents be? Any so thoughts if on they that?
0: Suspect, if they suspect that a uh, past fall or past injury has maybe impacted their child's learning. Exactly. Um, if they're not already identified by the school, as a parent, I would go to the school and ask for an evaluation uh, of your child's um present level of performance. Um, If I suspected a brain injury, I would also be seeking out someone like Sandra to to look at kind of potential for impact to learning. You know, what, what, what does the student's executive function look like, that kind of thing. Often schools, though they try, are not as equipped as a person like Sandra to look at some of that more nuanced, detailed information. Sandra, thoughts?
2: I think that that's great. I mean, I think I want to back up and I certainly don't want to alarm parents. So, (laughs) you know, because kids are made to bump their heads as they're learning to do things like walk and run. And I mean, we all can think about the bruises and the falls that we took. Our children took and think, oh my gosh, is that the reason? And I, we all want to point to something to make sense of why a, ch- why a child is functioning the way they are. So I don't want to alarm parents, but when things maybe when there's a change in functioning, so if a child's had an injury where then there's a change in functioning and things just aren't connecting from one point of time to the next point of time, um, because because I think kind of even bringing it into you know traumatic brain injury is on a continuum. So everything from a concussion, which is a mild traumatic brain injury, to a more, you know, a severe significant brain injury that's required hospitalization, that's maybe required some level of significant medical intervention, right? Those are all brain injuries, but all brain injuries don't necessarily mean that a child is gonna have learning and or functional problems. So so again, us parents, we are quick to beat ourselves up about things and wanna kind of explain why our child is not doing what we want, basically. Let's get right down to it. But (laughs) at the end of the day, um, you know, I just wanna assure parents that 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 fall, and that bump for the 10th time, you know, on that step is not the reason why necessarily.
0: Yeah, and I know depending on what literature you read, somewhere between 80 and 90% of all concussions or brain injuries fully recover. And so, you know, we can, we can live without tons of fear, you know, I
1: was going to say, otherwise everyone's going to wrap their kids up in bubble wrap and wear helmets.
0: (laughs) Right. So what we need to watch for are those kids that don't recover and how, how can we provide support for them and how can we track kids when they do have an injury? So we can, be sure to be aware of the ones that don't recover fully so we can help them.
1: Thank you. For teachers, as far as they're concerned, so they're reading along in, in the child's IP or past history report, um, and they come along that, is it that information, is that something that a teacher should follow up with families about? What type of
0: recommendations would you have for teachers? I would say if you come across something in a report that, or in a child's file, it was probably significant enough at that point that somebody mentioned it to even get in the file. And so I might ask about it. Um, And just, you know, I, I saw in your child's file that they experienced a fall from a tree how are they doing? Are they recovering, you know, that kind
2: of thing. Lori, were you referencing not only what should teachers do if they read about it, but I mean, because for the meat of the work that certainly Siebert has done and we're doing with them is what do you do if you have a child with a traumatic brain injury in school? Mm-hmm. That's where it becomes messy and complicated and there's no one pathway, but I think that's where Seabird is a leader and really creating pathways so i didn't know if you were going to get into that or if that was also what you were referencing
1: yeah well yeah please go ahead and and tell us more about that what what exactly is cbert what do they do and how do they support
0: so cbert is a center at the university of oregon it's a research center um, and one of our biggest most important things that we do is take research to practice so I focus on schools. Um, we have other, other folks working there that focus on the adult populations, um, but in terms of what your listeners are interested in, probably school. Um, and I put in the chat, so you can share it out, the new Siebert website, which is called returntoschool.org. And there is online training on that site um, for educators, anybody in any country can. Can utilize it. It is 10 lessons on all things brain injury for educators. Uh, we provide rules, um webinars. We do multiple webinars um, that are about an hour long each. Sandra's done one for us on assessment. Uh we, else, we do conferences. Um In fact, if you go to to returntoschool.org under tools, there's sample IEP goals for students with brain injury because one of my biggest pet peeves is pulling out an IEP for a student with brain injuries and uh, a brain injury and all it is is reading and math. Mm -hmm. And so there's lots of ideas about executive function kind of um, deficits that need specially designed instruction. Um, I'm trying to think what we do, trainings all over the place. Um, Used to be in person, now they're online. Uh, hopefully we'll be back in person soon. Um, and we do research on best practice for, for students and teachers.
2: I I want to punctuate something you said, because, I mean, I think we're so passionate about this because I think people think, Oh, it's a brain injury, but they have a learning problem. So they, they treat the child as if they just have a learning disability Mm -hmm. or, they had a brain injury and maybe they have, they, they kind of act like a child with ADHD and they're kind of hyperactive and attentive and impulsive. So they teach a child, the child like they have ADHD. But these kids are very different. And on any given day, they might be functioning differently. And the needs of the family are also different. And the needs in the classroom are gonna be different. And so we just really want to emphasize that these kids are, they can be very complicated. And that's why, you know, having knowledge, education, um, creating pathways for kids from the hospital in, in back into the school and having kind of collaboration and having paperwork to support teachers, you know, how do they deal with the social, emotional, behavioral learning, um, attention needs of a student? in the classroom, they are not necessarily like all the other kids that they've dealt with. They are very different. And so that's where I think, you know, I just want to take this opportunity that there are such great resources available.
0: Yeah, so on, that made me think of one of the things on there. There's two more things on this website. We have, they're called Research Matters, and we take research articles that are Often complicated and very long, and turn them into what do teachers need to know out of it? And so it's bulleted. This is, of all this research, this nice. is really what you just need to know. Um, and then we also do one-page guides for all things brain injury. So um, things like what what can what are some strategies for success for a child with short-term memory, or for um, I don't know social interaction, or whatever subject. There's a, there's about fifty of them. Um, that are PDFs that can be sent out, shared, printed, any of that kind of stuff. So, I mean, basically, we just try to get as much information out as possible to support educators.
1: Yeah, I mean, it sounds comprehensive, and so informative. And I love the bulleted (laughs) points. um, Because we all know our teachers right now, especially during COVID are so Exhausted anyway, but um, having having those uh, suggestions for them is essential. So when we're thinking about our students with TBI, uh, you mentioned that their profiles they're, they they might act like they have ADHD, or or you might it might look like autism. So what I think I hear you saying is it's the brain injury that's causing these behaviors or actions versus, um, an actual ADHD diagnosis or autism. Mm -hmm. Is that what I heard?
2: Yes. I mean, I'll take a, I'll, I'll step in and just say, for example, let's say a student had a brain injury prior to which they were able-bodied, they were neurotypical, they didn't require any medications, any additional supports and post-injury they're having focus problems. Maybe they're impulsive. They say things without thinking. Uh, they're struggling now with learning. And that child's need, they, they. number one, they weren't born like that. So it's a systems change for that child, that family. And then also um, maybe, I don't know if, you know, a, a metaphor that we use is kind of like Swiss cheese on any given day, they might not be like that. Just mm-hmm. depending on how neurons are are firing and where they're at with their sleep hygiene and stress levels. And let's just add depression and anxiety, which we're learning are great mediators to being able to function. Um, this is an area that we're really looking at in kids with concussion as well is kind of the role that sleep, depression, anxiety are playing on the recovery profile of these students. So, so, so that's why it's so important to not just lump them into, oh, well, we, you know, we know ADHD kids, so we'll just set them up like a child with ADHD.
1: And what, this may be difficult to answer off the cuff, but what would be one way of working with them differently than you would with a child with ADHD, let's say?
0: I think in the school situation, part of it is knowing, right? So that, that is it's a TBI versus, um, ADHD, and you know, with with ADHD, you're looking specifically at executive function disorder. Um, with a, with a child with a brain injury, you they're they're recovering, and so the accommodations or modifications or instruction that you need for most of the students have to change rapidly and frequently at, because the student is changing rapidly and frequently. Whereas with ADHD, you know, you often. I mean, you can work with them, but what you see is what you get, more mm-hmm. more or less, right? That that is a child who has that disorder with with brain injury. You have to evaluate it just constantly, and I think that is the thing a lot of educators miss. We're so used to our regular special education um, timelines. You know, we do the evaluation every three years, we do the IEP once a year, and then we don't think about it too much until then because we just do what we do, right? But with a kid. With a brain injury, we're, we're looking at, you know, frequent, frequent assessment and changing a plan. I
2: see. And I'll, I'll add on to that. Maybe there are some kind of co-occurring issues. So maybe there's more memory-based issues associated with that injury, too. So what are the interventions that we're going to set up to support that child? Um, because they also have some kind of co-occurring issues related to the injury.
0: Mm-hmm got it thank or you or even a physical injury mm-hmm. um oftentimes they when they come back to school they still have physical injuries that they're dealing with as well so um hmm. have to accommodate for that as well
1: well i do want to switch gears to your work on concussions because what you're doing is um is very important when we're You're working with um, people who have had a concussion, you want to ensure schools use the proper protocols when there is a suspected concussion, but also for when they're returning to school, right? Tell us more about your work on that.
2: Go ahead, Melissa, and I'll pat around it.
0: Are you talking about the difference between return to play and return to school, like sports versus return to school or...
1: Well, yeah, let's go ahead and talk about your return to play with sports. Why is that so essential? I know in a lot of our international schools, we do have set protocols in place. Um, I was a coach. As a coach, we needed to take courses on how to recognize concussion and um, ensure that our students weren't playing when they were injured. But give us a brief
0: history of why this is important. Well, I mean... Mostly it's because if somebody's injured, we don't want them to go back into play and get another injury. And we know that in that timeline of recovering, they're significantly more likely to get another injury if they're playing. Um, so we want to avoid that, um, but also not just brain injuries, right? So if, if they have a brain injury, they're much more likely to say they're a soccer player, maybe get a knee injury because their balance might be a little off or, Um, you know, some other type of injury. So we definitely don't want that to happen. Um, And ultimately our kids are students first, right? So we want to protect their developing brain and make sure that they can be a successful student before they're athletes. Um, So, I mean, that's, that's it in a nutshell from my, I don't know if Sondra has
2: anything. Oh, I think that's great. I mean, I think, you know, just, and the evolution is what was it 2000 and 2007, 2008, Washington was the first state that passed the return to play law, Oregon was right on its heels and um, really, you know, the focus was initially on returning to play. And now there's legislation coming on board reminding us that, like Melissa said, the first thing that kids have to do is return to the classroom. And I think because and one thing that we really didn't highlight and we all know this is a brain injury is an invisible injury. We don't see it on the outside. So what we see is a student who looks able bodied, who looks like they're fine. And we then develop expectations around that when really they're not. And we know that the brain is going through this huge growth, developmental growth period in high school, especially, and we really need to protect its potential. So, it's, you know, the pendulum is swung everything from, you know, take them off and put them in a closet and let the brain heal to realizing that that's not the great thing. And again, letting research be a better guide and how do we develop systems to really help that student get back into school safely, return to school safely, and then get back into play while preserving their sense of kind of self efficacy, self esteem. Kind of and their mental health because we know that that also plays a part in this yeah so and
0: you know like one of the things i always like to say is that we have an obligation to these students who most are going to recover right to not let an injury that is likely to be temporary alter the trajectory of their life mm-hmm. right so we those kids that need temporary accommodations we we have a responsibility to make sure that they get those and that they're able to move forward into adulthood unhindered. Um, right.
1: It's not worth it to play one extra basketball game or, or push them too far in school if they're needing that time to rest and recover.
0: Right. Or make them take the SAT oh, yeah. that their college admittance um, relies on while they're in recovery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. And I like what you said, Sandra,
1: about mental health. Um, I've witnessed several high school students who have, um, been impacted by a fairly serious concussion and then go through a very deep period of depression, Mm um, for sometimes years after. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so when a student does return to school after a concussion, and you've, you've mentioned briefly about this, why can't it be back to business as usual? What, what it, what does their brain need? And what do teachers need to know?
0: You wanna take on what
2: the brain needs and I'll take on the teachers? Okay, I'll take (laughs) on what the brain needs. I wish that were an easy question to answer. And I think the most important thing is every brain is unique. Every student has a different set of vulnerabilities. So what one student needs isn't necessarily gonna be what someone else needs. So I think number one, it's not to assume that One student's brain is going to require the same exact pathway as another student's brain. So being flexible, because we know that it's going to be a combination of, uh, you know, letting that brain rest and recover, but also keeping that brain in the game and that student connected to their social community. But it's like if we were to take a broken arm and say, "Well, so what? You still have to use it," then we'd probably hinder the 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 recovery of that broken arm. So it's this it's this journey of you know doing a little bit, taking breaks, doing a little bit, taking breaks, expanding. It's you know the the ability because you know I think one thing that's important is the concussion, while maybe very nuanced and you know we're learning more and more about what happens to the brain, but it's really being framed up as a chemical reaction. So it's not necessarily a structural injury, as much as there's this kind of cascade of a chemical reaction that is kind of pulling all of the energy from that brain and making hard for that brain to do the things that it naturally needs to do. So the brain keeps all of our systems and organs going, but it also does all of our thinking and all of our, you know, all of our balance and motor stuff. And, and then, you know, all the, all the texting that kids are doing, which doesn't seem like it takes energy, but it really does. And so it's really a lot of education about teaching that student about what the brain is actually for. We call, I call my students who get concussions, my brain ambassadors, right? Because they have to educate the next group. And, um, and so it, it is, it's a journey of recovery, a pathway to recovery where we're managing the energy input and output. So that's part of what I do. And then what teachers do, who, they do the heavy lifting.
0: <laughs> so um, yeah, with teachers, I think the biggest thing that teachers need to know is to understand the impact of uh, mild concussion. I think teachers and educators do a great job with our moderate to severe kids. So kids that it's obvious that they've been injured, I think teachers have that pretty well dialed in it's the kids that are the mild to moderate group that look like everything's okay. Right. Um, So understanding what the potential impact of that might be. One of the biggest complaints we get is that um, my teacher doesn't have any empathy towards me on this and they're not providing temporary accommodations. Um, So basically that just comes down to educating educators uh, about that. Um, And, you know, we assume that educators are there because they want to do the best they can by kids. So it's none of it. it, We never assume any of that is intentional. It's just not knowing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think that that is one piece I put in the chat and you can share it with whoever you like, but we have a return to academics protocol after concussion that we like to pass out. And it, it basically shows a moderated total return to, um, the classroom, and it's like step one: rest. Step two: light mental activity. Step three: part-time school. Um, step four: part-time school with less supports, and then all the way to full-time school with supports and full-time school without supports. And so, it kind of um, outlines how to graduate kids back back in and when to progress them to the next to the next steps. And um, I think having protocols and policies in place in schools that teachers are educated about would make a massive difference in, in the life of the kids that are mild and moderately
2: injured. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Now, Melissa talks about that as if it's easy to do. And don't forget, we have the family system over here and the parents were activated because of everything. And so what we've learned in the well, you know, we, I've been part of the TBI consultants for at least twenty years, and then certainly in this world of concussion, is it's messy, and what we're—that's what we're trying to do and study in Central Oregon—is what are our lessons learned? What are things that the components of such a program that are really going to set families, the student, and the schools up for success to successfully move a student back to school and then back to play, and it is. It's a challenge.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. And I love what you said about the empathy piece and also just the the fact that the majority of teachers want what's best for their students. Um, it's usually just that they're not educated in this particular um, field we've seen it time and time again right? <laughs> with, with this type of thing. So um, I think your resources that you're sharing are going to be so helpful for everyone. So I really appreciate that. And sure. I will definitely share those on our show notes. Um, I think we're about ready to um, tie up for today. But if, if there was one question that you wished I would have asked you, uh, what would that be?
2: I mean, for me, maybe, um, you know, what are, you know, are there, is there one or two things that lessons learned with you guys doing this for so long that you would encourage other schools to think about and identify? I don't know, Melissa, if there's anything.
1: Well, why don't you go ahead and answer that (laughs) question?
2: (laughs) I mean, I think, I think two things for me. One is that every school should have an identified point person to manage the students and be that point person for parents to contact and teachers to contact. Because when parents, because they're trying to do their best and listen to their child, just reach out independently to teachers. There's not a coordinated effort for that student within the system. And it gets, um, it's easy to have communications go awry, so that's number one. Number two is what is your system from the medical side back to the educational side? and um, Because that also can be a place where things get really messy and especially if a school is hesitant because these are kids who've had medical injuries to then adjust protocols without a medical person being part of that conversation, but they don't know how to bridge that gap between the medical and the educational. Like I think that's one of the things that we have done really successfully. We actually have an educational person who is allowed to float between the educational and medical side to help bring information back and forth so that there's real collaboration. Mm-hmm.
1: that's great and between the families as well i like how you mentioned the family system
0: yeah
2: it's absolutely. so
1: important thanks so,
0: melissa I have, I have two things yeah have, one is as educators we need especially of high school students we need to remember that these kids will not ask for help so <laughs> Good most point. of them are not going to raise their hand and say i had a concussion please help me like the edu- the educators need to go to them and talk to them um the other thing is is that educators can't know everything. It's one of the hardest jobs there is, and expecting educators to know everything about everything is, is just unrealistic, not fair, all, all the above with that. And I think the takeaway for educators about concussion and brain injury is ask for help. Right. There's resources available. There's people all over the place who who can provide assistance. Um, Ebert's always open to providing assistance. Sandra's always open to helping. So, um, you know, we all care about kids. So if you have kids
2: that are needing support, make sure you ask. And I think I'm going to put in a shameless plug and I know we're not quite ready, Melissa, but we do have a side project. We are developing a consulting, um, arm where we are being positioned to help schools set up concussion pathways.
1: Well, that's fantastic. I'm really excited. And as soon as you guys get that, let us know so we can let everybody else know.
0: It'll be on the website. So I'm sure. Perfect.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you both so much for your time today. I know I've learned a lot and I know our, our um, listeners will be very appreciative of this.
2: Wonderful. Thank you so much. It's really nice to meet you.
1: Yeah. It's been so fun. Thank you. Thanks for stopping in to our Senya Happy Hour. Don't forget to head over to senyainternational.org podcasts and check out our show notes from our discussion today. We at Senya hope you are enjoying these podcasts. There is so much to explore and we're at the very beginning, so feel free to drop us a note and let us know what you'd like to hear more about during your next Senya Happy Hour. Until then, cheers!